Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. This week, we're sharing two highlights from the 22nd Rendezvous with French Cinema series, co-presented with UniFrance. First, we'll go to a special evening with French cinema pioneer Agnès Varda. And after that, we'll hear the Q&A following the New York premiere of Raw, which opens in select theaters this weekend. Every year, Rendezvous with French Cinema brings the best of contemporary French filmmaking to New York audiences. This year's slate featured films by emerging talents and established masters, raising ideas both topical and eternal. In conjunction with this year's festival, French Institute Alliance Francais celebrated the work of French film icon Agnès Varda, with screenings and exhibitions paying tribute to her influential and inventive work across many disciplines. Varda stopped by the Film Society for a special talk in our amphitheater, focusing on her varied and inventive work in cinema. The evening was moderated by critic Melissa Anderson. Let's go to that now. Good evening, Agnès. We have so much to discuss. We have 60 plus years of filmmaking, of your filmmaking. We have your 14 years as a visual artist to discuss. And we have so little time. As a way in to discussing your all this extraordinary work, I want to tell everyone about a beautiful moment that I had in September of 2000 when I was fortunate enough to meet you for the first time. I was interviewing you. You were in New York to discuss, to, pr to promote the Galeners and I. And we had a good time. I we remember, because I know I'm giving interviews like always, but sometimes it is a meeting. And I remember vividly, we were in a place and we stayed for a while, not always speaking. We enjoyed drinking a tea or something. I, when they told me, would you, would you like to meet Melissa? I remember meeting her. So time is, is erased. I mean, we met two days ago about the cleaners. <laughs> I'm very touched that you remember this because I was incredibly nervous and you put me at ease immediately. And uh, yeah, it was a wonderful two-hour conversation. And th with the cleaners and I, which was 2000, our conversation, we're going to skip a lot over the decades and discussing Agnes as a filmmaker, Agnes as a visual artist. But from the Gleaners and I, which was made in 2000, you later did an installation, Padotopia. It's a, it's a good term. And as you see the costume, I don't wear it every day, you know, only on Sunday, <laughs> only on Sunday. So this is true. Since we met in the Gleaners, this is the piece as a filmmaker, which made me switch to the installation. So we will show you if you wish, yeah. because it became, you'll see, an installation that uh, I was invited by Obris at the Venice film, no, Venice Art Biennale. So it was my first time I dared, because I loved so much the idea of installation. I've been following the passage from modern art to contemporary art, and was seeing people making installations. Would I dare, would I dare? And I've been invited, so you have here a little piece of Le Glaner yeah. and my first installation. Could we see a clip C, please? It, um, was, uh, it was true that <coughs> he gave me much joy to have three screens, 
because I've been doing films and I love what it is, have people in a room watching one screen and sharing the same moments of you know violence or calm. But what I love in the installation and the three screens, like everybody comes and stays or not stay and, and builds the way of vision, build what he sees, what he chooses, what she chooses. So I have a lot of satisfaction satisfaction with making what they call installations. Mm -hmm. But I still love cinema. Well, and you just recently completed a film, isn't that correct? Yes, I've been co-writing and co-directing a documentary with the artist J.R. that I'm sure you know, more or less, here in New York. He's well known. And we did a real documentary, going the country with his magic truck and meeting people and listening to them. And since we have different ways of putting light on the people, uh, we put light the way I listen to them, we make them speak, and then he does his huge images. And we felt that we were together wishing to give voice and to give room for people who are unknown and somewhere in the country, in villages. In France, the name is Visage Village, and here it will be Faces Places but it won't open before, I don't know what, November maybe, so be, don't, be, don't be curieux, wait. <laughs> so, but you see, there is something sometimes I show in these meetings. It's because uh, I don't have a way of introducing myself and my family, but once I was in San Francisco, somebody told me about a man called Varda, and Tom Lady took me there. So I made it right away a short about that meeting. And if you agree that we see that. Yeah, the, the film that Agnes is discussing is a lovely short film from 1967, is that the correct year, called Uncle Yanko. And I believe it was w one of the first films that you made in the first of two extended stays that you had in California. You're all right. <laughs> no, I'm not making jokes, but it is true that I didn't intend to make a film, but I met that man. I was so excited. I asked Bob Greensfeller, can you give me a camera, some 35 millimeter shot and, and we went directly to do the film two days after because I was leaving for France. But I wanted to show how excited I was, how, how happy I was. So I show you a little piece because, you know, you can say I met my uncle. Or, I discovered I had an uncle. But I wanted to the audience to share how it was exciting for me. It's a short piece, but yeah. D'accord? Parfait. Could you please show clip A? It's because you know This is from Uncle Yanko. It's the way we tell reality which makes sense. Because you can say something, just might make the fact, but I like to share the feeling. You, you said something very, very wonderful to me when we met earlier backstage. You said that a large part of a filmmaking, of your filmmaking project, is the question, how do we invent the facts? How do, do we reinvent, make it uh, interesting and share, you know, I'm sure you understood how happy I was, you know? It's not enough to say that I met the man, but. It was wonderful, and then there is a shot about that, 20 minutes, but this is the part in which it's clear that it was a good surprise. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, 
they're different kind of surprise. Remember, well, something maybe we could show. You know, I was doing a film about more or less my life, my work. If you have heard of it, it's called The Beaches of Agnes. So, film I made. And part of it was to try to find memories in Belgium, memories in the different places where I lived. And so, uh, somebody, you know, would see. I thought I should go to the house where I was raised in Brussels. So, somebody gave me the address, you will see the story. But something happened that you will see. I had in mind to go and see if I remember my sister, my little sister, my two brothers, you know, something going back to my youth. But it turned differently. Tu veux montrer ça? This is a clip, clip F. Clip F, please. And this is from your wonderful cinema memoir, The Beaches of Agnes, from 2008. Has somebody seen The, the Beaches of Agnes? Oh, my God. Maybe, maybe it bores you to see it again. But it makes a point. It makes a point that when you love, love to do documentaries, you know, the syndrome of being a documentarist comes out. You'll see if we have the, the piece. Do we have clip F, please? Oh, here we go. I think this clip that we just saw really exemplifies one of the more extraordinary traits of your of your documentary filmmaking, which is you're always so endlessly curious and you're absolutely willing to follow strange paths, take odd detours, follow digressions, and that you see that quite a lot in a wonderful TV series that you did called Anjasvarda From Here to There, which was shown at the Film Society, I believe, three years ago. And I remember, it's a, it, if I'm remembering correctly, it's a, it's a five-episode series. Each installment is about 45 minutes, and you travel all around the world, and your, your travels are occasioned by retrospectives of your films or installations, and you're just so excited to meet new people and there's a, a wonderful moment where I believe you're in Stockholm and you're talking to a journalist who's lost all of her hair and then you interview her and she explains what happened. In that case, uh, I made the, the interview on her, yeah. Mm -hmm, yeah. But it was interesting because she really lost her hair. Suddenly, it's something called something, I don't remember the name. I think but it's sometimes with an emotion, yeah. she became bold. So I was so surprised. I asked her about it. It was nice, and we had a conversation. You know, it's interesting to meet people that I don't know what I call real people, not that the other one are fake, but not looking for casting, not looking for famous people, even though I met some beautiful artists like Boltanski or Solage, but I don't treat them better than or differently than people I meet in the street or in markets or fishermen or people. This is true that real people inspire me very much. And sometimes I like to give a shape to that, you know, because if I can speak about the widows. Pardon? Can I, do you allow me to speak about the widows? Oh, of course, of course. Because, you know, I've seen documentaries about people out of work, a farmer, the problem, the migrant. Many, many subjects are treated because there are beautiful documentaries all over the world. But I never saw anything about the widows. It's a category of people that seem to be boring or not interesting. And I was in the island of Noirmoutier, 
where I've been living with Jacques Demy, and I was a widow. And I noticed that in that island there are more widows than any other place because a lot of men die in the sea, fishermen or in the harbor or something. So I decided to make a documentary about that. Is a fighter, maybe. <laughs> so I did something, and you will see, it's again the, the dispositive, what is it, set up? Mm -hmm. I, I decided to find a shape for that. Is, is there a fight? <laughs> Try to avoid that. So, so you'll see, it's very well explained. The way I treated the situation, obviously in a real installation, you have the, the screen and you have 14 chairs and you have to choose a chair. So I filmed the installation to give you an idea. And if we could show that yeah. excerpt. Could you see. show clip E, please? And I like to see those because people know my film, but they don't very, very rarely they have the opportunity to see the installation. Those are the widows of Noir Moutier. <laughs> you see, that was something in which I, I mixed because I, I don't want to have like I've been a photographer and a drawer, filmmaker, 35, then a video. No, this is the same, in the same piece. We have the 35 millimeter film, well done by Ricotti. But then all these pieces that I did, I met these women alone, or sometimes with one help for the sound. And they trusted me, they say, I was living in the same island, they had known Jack, they knew I was widow. And they spoke to me so nicely. They offered me very sincere thoughts that maybe they didn't say so often, you know. And when I did that, and then everybody had to take the earphone. So it was a person-to-person -person conversation. Didn't look like a documentary in which everybody speaks in front of everybody. So it became very intimate. And as you can imagine, when we go in another country, there is no way to put subtitles because it would ruin the subject. So what happened, and I was very impressed, we went to China and they wanted to show this. So we had to dub the world voices. So can you imagine in China, a widow of Noir Moutier starting to say, you know, my husband died and died, well, and in Chinese, with Chinese audiences, men and women, with their eyes very touched and they were very impressed. And I was more than everybody impressed that cinema, art, is a language that crosses the borders, you know. It, you, you, I do that in China, and they understand what I'm speaking about. Because they understand they have mother or grandmother. Maybe they were not enough taking attention to them, you know. Very often people say to me, oh my God, I didn't listen to my mother, now she's dead. And, and some people got the feeling that some children went and they say, I have to speak to my grandmother. I don't know her enough. It's something, it's like everybody reacts personally differently. And this, listening to one or two, you have to change chair and to get another earphone. It's, you know, I'm trying to work after cinema. What can I do? I'm trying to find a different way to address to people, different way of sharing experiences, another shape of cinema, art, whatever you call it. I think that with that very eloquent statement, this may be a wonderful time 
to take some questions from the audience. Did you all hear the question? If I get bored about traditional cinema, but how could I get bored? I mean, cinema for me is an adventure, experiment. And I never repeated myself from one film to another because if it makes sense for me is that can I look for something, not question of better, or, but can I find another way of communicate? Can I express what I feel like there is a piece in the, in the gallery, Blumenpool, which is the seaside. It's very simple. There is a photo of the sea. Then uh, the Chipayen the part. Then it becomes cinema. The end of the photo moves really like a film. Then you have sand. So it's three very simple elements. But people sit, and wherever they are in New York, at the floor of the gallery, suddenly they are at the seaside. I'm proposing a very strong evocation. You saw it? Yes. It's like being at the seaside. It's not a photo, it's not a film. It's something composed to make you feel that there are many ways of representing anything, landscape and emotion. So how could I be bored? I have still a lot of ideas that I could maybe, if I, I, I stay just a little more, I could do other things. This gentleman's question was how much Agnès was influenced by the films of Jacques Demy, her husband, and conversely, how much was Jacques Demy influenced by Agnès? Well, we had the pleasure to live together and share, you know, the food, the bed, the children, but we didn't share the way of working because really, and I admire Jacques Demy's work, but it has nothing to do with my research. And I, I don't think I was being influenced by him because when he did Lola, you know, that was something, I love it, but I, I wouldn't do it. I don't know how to do it. And when I did Vagabond, I remember he loved the film and he said, well, I, w I wouldn't do that. Going with a rebellious girl on the road, this is not my thing, you know. We, like the young girls of Fushford, that I, oh, I adore the film. It brings joy, intelligence, you know, this beautiful sister playing twins. I love the film, I can see every day. But I won't be able to do something like this. I don't think we influence. I was much more influenced by painting. Painting, that I love painting since I was very young. And literature, like my first film was influenced by Faulkner, Wild Palms. Things like this have been more important for me than cinema because at 25 I had not seen more than five films or six. So when I meet his student now, being 22 or 23, and they have seen 100 films, and they know everything about cinema. I'm very admired, I say, oh my God, they know so much when I knew nothing. So uh, there is no, Jacques was seeing much more film when we met. It took me to, to movies to see films, you know, because uh, my, uh, my inspiration doesn't come from cinema, even though now I love it and I go to see many, and I admire many filmmakers, but it's, it's not, I, I don't feel we have been influencing each other. But maybe you see it is fine with you. I, I'm very eager to ask you a question about uh, one of my favorite films that you made during your second return to California. A beautiful film called Documentor, which you made in 1981, I believe. And you made it the same year as your documentary, Murmurs. That's interesting because you spoke about the color. And I remember loving the Californian colors 
and filming all these murals, expressing the city, the sun, the extraverted way of... But then I made the second film that you speak about now, Documentaire, that in English we call it an emotion picture. Mm -hmm. And it's a shadow film. It's a shadow of the other film. It took us a lot of time to go on the sidewalk that has no sun. We escaped the sun. We succeeded to make a film with sort of white light or dark, but there is no sun. I remember saying this is Hollywood with no fun, no sun, no pun. I remember saying that. <laughs> but you see, uh, I love colors, but sometimes it's important to fight colors to express something. Even in Black Panthers or uh, in Panca Bianco, those are your films that you made in San Francisco. Again, this idea of color exists everywhere. And this, like, yeah, but when it makes sense, the Black Panthers were not only in color, but in their expression, they were colorful, you know, and strong, and singing, and expressing their color, comment dire colère, la colère, well, their anger with songs and dances, and, and, the other one who spoke about was Yonko. Yonko was a painter, he was doing color. You know, when I did documentaire, I felt strongly that I should avoid color. It's a choice, it's an artistic choice. So I, I love color, but I also love escaping color. May, may I ask that, that you, you, you indulge just showing this, this wonderful clip from Documentor where we see it your... shows it, I don't know. Which. Yeah, no, we, we have a clip. It's just a very, it's 40 minute segment of, of Matthew. And it's about a child. And we know that, you can ask the, we know that children have emotion that we don't always understand. I love children, I had, I, have, I had two, but I know that the world of children is something that we try to understand, but it's not ours. We, we don't reach what they feel. And I remember, if it's the scene, yeah. I believe. Could you show clip J, please? That's all. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but. <laughs> it's a scene, it doesn't matter. It's a scene in which they are looking for a plus place to rent. And I was impressed because all the places were say, no kids, no pets. So we found a place, they find a place where they can have a child. And they enter the place and they look around and she said, that will be ro your room. And she said, like mother said to children, you will be very happy, you will have your room. And the answer is, and if I'm not happy, what will you do? <laughs> and well, it's the end of a scene, but it's one of the points in which we believe that we are good in understanding, in listening to people, but we, other people are always other people than we are. So I think our understanding is limited, especially with children. Oh, I've been working you know, with, with cleaners, with squatters, with people you know, in the street, in the road, and I try to listen, I try to understand, but they are different. I'm not sure I reach something in which they understand comes, you know. You like to see the squatter thing. Oh, you yes, know, yes, yes, yes. Squatters, you know, because we speak about the migrant, and my God, this is an universal problem, terrible, and about the people having no roof. But sometimes they grab a roof, this is half broken, and they squat. But then nobody allows them to stay, so they're kicked out a very violent way. And I thought, if you ask, can we ask, please? 
May we see clip D. Because what I thought when I did the stoop is that they need a bed, so they need a mattress, they need heat, so I made a, a oven, they need food. And I, I got a... Like what a simple mattress means, you know, and all that imagine and documentary and inventing a shape helped me to think about them and not just being poor people, okay, poor people, I feel for them. I tried to make an image of that, constructing something with these objects, the mattress, the oven, the four, the chauffage, the heating thing, and, and the, the beans, you know, that they buy. When they can buy, they buy a can, and or they eat it cold, or they heat it, or they eat it old, or they heat it, I don't know how to say. But what I mean is that I'm trying to make understand that there may be, there may, may be a way to tell things. It's not a paper, it's not a reportage, I'm not a Madame uh, Charité, I don't know how you call that. I don't know, I try to, to be, to do my work as filmmaker and videos and what can I express that can be shared. And I hope you were touched what they say, that kicked out, you know. And, and I think it's interesting to know in a shape which is cinema or video. It's not just a report that could be in a magazine. Somebody said that my documentary started where television stops, but it's not true because I've seen incredibly good television reportage. Now it's getting more and more. So I just pick categories of people where there are no documentary, like the widows, you know, and the squatter. Mm -hmm. I had not seen that. But there are many other subjects that are well treated. And we need to share what, what, what people live, you know. We don't only have one life, so what we can learn from other people, from other lives, I think make us vaguely understand better the tragic and chaotic world where we are. Well, I think that's evident in your very first film, La Pointe Court, where there are two professional actors and then all the other characters are played by non-professionals, people who you met in set. Is that, was that the town where, where it was filmed? Where you spent your, your adolescence? Well, I spent, we were pushed by the war and the bombs, so we ended up in that city that mm. we didn't know. But you see, uh, what you said about... <coughs> It's, uh, we are not the witnesses, official witness of our time, but we are, naturally we are. And when I made the film about the rebellious girl that is called Vagabond, it was something new happening because I've seen boys on the road, older men on the road, and suddenly young girls and women were. So, I've been following the change of of society, I would say. And on that thing, I took a girl because it was the beginning of the rebellious girl on the road. I had not seen them before. So I tried to catch something happening, like I made a film about feminists called One Thinks the Other Doesn't, because we had been fighting like tiger to obtain birth control, which is like a big deal, and the right of abortion. And I see that these fights that we did years ago, it's never, c'est jamais gagné, comme on dit. It, we never won, win. We have to go back, and the history does like this and back, and this and back. So I'm trying to be, 
like a leaf in the wind, you know, feet, feeling free and catching something on the way. Well, if I miss this. Let's take, uh, yes. Uh, the technology has changed so much from 35 millimeter Super 8 video, digital. You're right, because I even remember taking picture with a camera, a box, with uh, something, and I had to put a veil and change the, comment dit les plaques, I don't know. We had to put the thing, close, uh, open and close. I mean, the 19th century <laughs> technique that I used because I loved it, I think it was fun. I took a portrait of Brassai like this, you know. But what I'm saying is that I went with, what's what, with, with what was happening. I remember for the Glennon and I, it was the first time I shot with a video camera and discover it with joy because it's very interesting. But you see, I went back to 35 sometime and I do video. I did the, the Cisola almost alone and sometimes I ask people to do so. It, it's just different ways that we can use it, different opportunities. You don't film the same way, you know. I could not have done the widows if I had needed a big camera and a crew. They would never have spoken. So they could speak to me because I came alone with a little camera, it looked like a photo, you know, camera. And it was so peaceful, I had a little tripod, but so peaceful that they felt they could speak. So we have to use the technology to make sense about what we do. And the editing, now I cannot edit myself on these things. The timeline I cannot touch, but I do every decision about every shot, every cut, but I don't know, I knew how to do it, before, you know, f with the magnetic tape, we had to glue and, uh, and cut and hang. But when it became digital editing, uh, I'm there every day, but I don't touch the thing, it's too complicated, I don't know how to do it. But um, editing is, is a mind problem, it's not a technical problem, like everything. One of, one of my favorite pieces in the, your exhibition at Blum and Poe is how you're using film is a very material quality and building those beautiful, well, they're maquettes, but those cinema shacks where you've taken leftover strips from your films, Les Creatures. You say leftover. No, it's the point is that, you know, we used to show films with 30 millimeters, 35 millimeter reels. And they were like seven or nine cans with reels. And we would go in the booth. Projection was showing the reel and sometimes there are two to show the real one and then the machine, the real two. And the technology has changed so much that now old films are in DCP, which is a little cassette like this. Obviously it's more interesting, it's less heavy, easy to send by mail. So something happened that we were surrounded by hundreds of, of reels of film. And because I have the idea of, uh, comment dit récupération? Recycling, I say, okay, what can we do with these reels? And I decided to build shacks. So I, the first one I did was in Paris, at La Fondation Cartier. I, a film that had been a flop, by the way, Les Créatures, and I used one full print plus a little more. And somebody helped me, we made a house, a real shack. Old walls, old ceiling was made with the stock film. We made little frames, we, on les a remplis comment? We, there was a way to <laughs> to use the frame and put the film. So you enter into the shack. Has somebody seen one of those or not? 
Somebody saw it in Paris, yeah. You know, you can enter the shack, and if you look through, we were wise, we put the close-up at the height of the eye, so they could see Catherine Deneuve and Michel Piccoli through the light, you know, and then sit on the boxes that we made, like Soul, Tabouret, Soul. And I did another one in Los Angeles with a Cali Californian film called Lions, Love, and Lies. We, were, we had prints that nobody wants to show, and I built another shack in the LACMA, a big shack. People enter, they would see the film through. It, it's interesting because it's a joke. I love shacks, like every children has, every child has done shacks, you know, with paper, with sheets, with whatever. So I, I mean, old, old child making shacks with film and big shacks. I, I don't want to enter, you know, like, a cat pat comme on dit. I like to understanding and say, this is my house, you know. And so uh, I'm joking and l enjoying what's happening in the change of, of technology, because you can always create something out of it. And these shacks, well, uh, you know, I love them, and I'm trying to do others. So I did miniature, I did mini shacks to, to give the idea to some mécène or sponsor to build the big shacks because it's, you cannot make it for five dollars, but, but, but I have in mind to do, with every of my film, abandoned prints to do shacks. And how many have you done so far? How many shacks? I did, I did two big ones and four miniatures, hoping. Uh, and the, the, four, the four miniatures are all up at Blum and Poe? Yeah, because like somebody has seen Le Bonheur, Happiness, Remember the beginning, there were a lot of sunflowers. So the shack will be a greenhouse growing sunflowers. You know, we have to interpret it, whether the story is. Like if somebody has seen La Pointe Courte, at the end there is a boat, abandoned. And I, I made a boat, which we made with film. So it's, it's a way of developing imagination about what is left of the films, prints. We have boxes and boxes of print. And some companies that just throw them away. I say, okay, wait, wait, we can recycle them, recycle them maybe, and have fun. Because the whole thing, working, has to be in relation with having fun to do it. Mm. It's, it's wonderful to make a film. It's wonderful to have people around, like a crew, they help with the image, the sound, they push you, they, they drive you, and, and the editor does, you know. I love that job because it's, you have to do it with other people, but you have in mind what you wish. It happens that it becomes what you wish. This is, sadly, this will have to be our last question. Yes. The question is, and please correct me if I've misstated it, is how being a woman has influenced your career as a filmmaker and how do you fight for what is important to you? Well, the fight for women is the fight of a woman in society. But as filmmaker, my fight from the first film is to find a language to be radical about what has been told that we could do or should do. So I'm very proud to be a woman and I, I fight for all other matters in which we have to fight. But I don't try to make a feminine cinema, but it's a cinema made by a woman. You know, I don't want to be twisted, but. Uh, I don't sit and say, can I make a woman film? I would bore with tears, you know. <laughs> but I know that my mind is the one of a woman, 
and I've understood things related to the world, the way it is, and it, ap it appears, you know, in the last film I just made with Jaya, we were in a harbor where the dockers worker, is that the word? The dock workers. Yeah, they are very strong, they, they, it's like a mafia. They have a union, they are strong, they make strikes all the time. And I went to see them and they're very nice people and I say, where are your wives? And they say, well, they're not allowed to come to the harbor places, bring them. And so we brought the wife, we start to see them and speak with them, very interesting women. And they help us to use containers, is that the word? Huge pieces of container. Containers, yeah. And to make like a Lego work, we pile them up and did this huge portrait of the women, like totems, you know. So this is on the harbor in France, at least, where women are the heroes. Let's take an example. But JR was totally agreeing with me. So together we decided to make an homage to them because they are not quoted as a big, big thing in the harbor. And the husband, the worker, worker agreed totally, and they say, well, it brings a little change of mentality. I mean, so it's interesting to work with people, not to tell them what they have to think or what they should do. Convince them to enter in the game and make the film with us and make the peace with us. And that's what I like is that we, we, know, we cannot change the world, we cannot change the people, but in some encounters, we can make that we share a project. And Jay is very good at that, you know, bringing them to to do it with us. So it becomes our work, but with their collaboration. And that have a thing, you will see it when it comes out. We, you will love these huge women on containers. <laughs> okay, thank you for your attention. This has been a great pleasure and honor. Thank you, Agnes. Thank you, Melissa. One of the most buzzed about films at last year's Cannes Film Festival was Julia Ducournau's shocking horror film, Raw. Often described as a coming-of-age cannibalism film, the movie tells the story of a young vegetarian whose first year in veterinary school leads her to awaken a craving for human flesh. Our screening of Raw during Rendezvous was presented by Film Comment magazine. Following the film, Julia Ducournau and lead actress Cahance Mahillier joined Film Comment's Violet Luca for a Q&A. Let's go to that now. So, um, Julia, in your introduction, you had mentioned the uh, screenplay structure, and I wanted to ask, you know, when you were creating this story, you know, the, the relationship between the two sisters is very truthful and unique. How did you structure that during the writing, and how do you, so how do you feel that, you know, do you see it as sort of a cruel thing, or a liberatory thing? Uh, not at all, I think it's just a human thing. The, the thing is that, about the sisters, that during like their first three drafts of the movie, um, they were not sisters. Alexia was just a girl that she had met there that was older and who was hazing her. And there was something I really did not like about this relationship that I was not satisfied with because I thought it was very hectic and uh, it was going all over the place um, in a, some kind of maso, a sadomasochistic way that I, I could not relate to it at all. And I was thinking, what's the problem with this relationship? Why can't I relate to it? And what's, yeah, what's wrong with it? And all of a sudden, because I, 
I did not understand, by the way, in this relationship, why Justine would keep on going to her and why the other one would keep on punching her like a punching bag. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden I had a click and I realized that if they were sisters, then all this would not be a problem anymore. We would understand if they were sisters, why she kept going to her, because she's going to her blood, you know, she's going to her roots, she's going to her family. And we would understand why the older sister would uh, use her like, uh, like she belonged to her in some way. And so that's why I think like the, the sisterhood and brotherhood is a very cinematographic relationship because when you're brothers or sisters, you go from love to hate, from love again to hate again, and you don't need to explain what's in between. You don't need to create stupid scenes that are about like, oh, I did not like the way you talked to me earlier. We have to talk about it. No one cares about that. It's really not cinematographic. Everything is really uh, visual in a sisterhood relationship or in a brotherhood relationship. That's why I chose this one and also, I want to say that in our background, in our cultural background, like I'm talking about founding texts, like the Bible or the Greek myth and stuff like that, the um, brotherhood and or sisterhood are always depicted as very gory relationships. They're always incredibly violent. Like there is something about this too much of love, you know, this fusion that both parties want to aim at again, but it's impossible because they are two different beings. So one of them have to, has to disappear, you know, a bit like Harry Potter and Voldemort, if you wish. <laughs> yeah, kind of. And so in order to structure this, I really thought about uh, a cell that was doing its mitosis. You know, when the cell divides, the, the, the medical um, uh, vocabulary is very important to me because medicine has a very big importance in the way I see the world and in the way I see the bodies. And I thought about this cell that would divide. And when the cell divides, it, there, are, there is a loss. You know, you have some matter that is lost. And if there is a loss, it means that something has been torn apart. And if something has been torn apart, it means that there is pain. There is pain on both sides. And also it means that the two cells that result from this dividing, from this division, sorry about my English, um, the two cells that result from it look very much alike. And yet they are very much different because they are not one cell anymore. And this is really how I try to uh, consider this relationship. And I wanted to ask, I mean, this is sort of just a one-off. Um, the music that Justine listens to while she's sort of staring at herself in the mirror, it's not, that's not a real song, right? Oh, it is. It, it is, is definitely oh, a real wow. song. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, I, actually, it's, to be honest, it's a band that Garance and I are very fan of. Um, it's, um, it's something that I thought was very relevant uh, when it comes to my movie because yes. it's a very hybrid <laughs> band. It's, it's an, a hybrid between rock, uh, sorry, with, between rap and, um, and gothic rock. And um, also it's very important because both of the singers are sisters. And because they are very big feminists, you know, they tend to um, take the cliches that you can hear in, um, in rap music and just, they, may, they don't even in, inverse them, invert them. They just make it their own. And they just talk about men the way men talk about women in rap songs. And I think it's incredibly empowering. And I really like that. And I really like the fact that they talk about uh, darkness and tombstones and death and all that. That's really, I think this is so mutant music 
that I thought was very relevant for my movie. I really like them. Yeah. By the way, they are called Orti, O-R-T-I-E-S. Um, and so, you know, this, the, the story and her, you know, the cannibalism is sort of a metaphor for sexual awakening as well. Um, or it, it's intimately tied up, you know, the, their consumption of flesh is sort of intimately tied up with uh, sex. And the roommate, uh, you know, he's gay and he immediately announces himself as gay and he says that, you know, you know, I spent 20 years in the closet, I'm not going to go back now. Why, I guess, why is he still sort of attracted and sort of gets pulled into their orbit? Because it's not just one sister, it's both sisters. Like he's attracted in some, there's something about both of those sisters that he needs to take a part of. Uh, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna answer this in two parts. Sure. Um, the first thing is that Adrian, for me, represents the look of the audience on my character. It was important for me that Adrian should be the way, uh, should, his eyes should be the way we should look at her. And that's why he's gay, by the way. That's why I did not want his look on her to be sexualized, because I do not want to sexualize her body. You know, she's a sexual being, indeed. She discovers sexuality, indeed. But I personally do not want to sexualize her to, to impose a, a certain look on her the way um, that um, that is um, that yeah the outs like yeah commercials or whatever you name it series and the way they put a look that is on women that is very objectifying and sexualized. So I did not want that. So I. If he had been straight since the beginning, he would have erupted in this room, and we, we would have thought, oh, okay, they're gonna fuck. And basically, this is just where this relationship would have been in our heads. Okay, they're gonna fuck, and we would have expected this moment to happen, and that would have been incredibly reductive and incredibly not interesting at all. Uh, I, wa I really wanted him to be a hero. I really wanted him to uh, bear with him this uh, tolerant look on her and this look of love on her. That was very important for me because I wanted to build up an empathy on my, on my, my character. I did this in many ways in the movie, but we can talk about it later. But her look on her was one of these ways. So after that, the thing is that for me, the, their couple represent an, a form of absolute. I really wanted them to be everything to each other in this context of violence and of humiliation and of cruelty. I really wanted them to rely on each other very much in very different ways. They are at the same time brothers and friends and lovers and they are everything. And there are those, those two poets, I always quote them, that are called Montaigne and La Boétie. They are French poets from the 17th century who obviously had a very strong friendship and people think that they were gay and that you do think that they were at a time where it was really not to be admitted. And one of them said about the other, because it was him and because it was me. And that's all. And this is just a sentence, you know. It's just because it was him, because it was me. And I really wanted them to represent this for each other. A form of absolute, uh, beyond determinism and beyond any kind of barriers, social, sexual, or family, familial um, barriers. So that was super important. Um, what was the rest of your question? Um, that he's... Uh, very attracted to both of them. Oh yeah, this I would, this I would, uh, I would um, kind of disagree with you. I do not think that Adrian is attracted to Alexia at all. 
I think Adrian is a very open-minded person and a very social person. So that's why, like, she's here to hang out. He's gonna play video games with her because she's here, you know. And he's just for me. I always saw him as the sunshine of the movie. You know, he's always he's super positive. He's very self-confident. He has nothing to prove, and um, and and that's why I like him. That's why, by the way, he was the easiest character to write for me. And. Um, so at the end, I don't think that the reason why he gets eaten is because there was something with the older sister. The reason why he gets eaten is just because the older sister is an animal. She is an animal. No, but you know, it's true. It's at the center of my movie. It's the relationship there is in... Sorry, I can't... Can I finish my sentence and then we, we will give you... You know, I feel that, yeah, maybe you have a very strong reaction to the movie, which is good. I mean, it's better than nothing. <laughs> Sorry, cheers. And, um, yeah, kind of got used to this. It's been a year. And, uh, <laughs> maybe we can talk about that later. <laughs> yeah, later, absolutely. <laughs> and the thing is that, yeah... Um, the thing is that this is the whole point is that the, um, um, Alexia represents the animality inside Justine and she's like her dark shadow. She's what she could be and what she does not want to be because the, 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 the journey of Justine is an ascending journey towards humanity whereas Alexia's journey is a descending journey towards animality more and more, you know. And the thing is that the reason why she eats him is because she can and because she's hungry, like any animals. You're hungry, you eat. And so you don't care whether you kill or not, you just eat. And that's why I did these like close-ups on the key and on the, you know, on the, the keyhole after, because she's like, she wants to, she knows that her sister is like that, but she doesn't want to believe it because it's her sister, you know, and she wants to see the best in her. So in the end, she doesn't, and she should have, obviously. So that's why, you know, he's just like, somehow a sacrificial hero in the end and that's why he's tragic to me and that's why I really cherish his character is because he always he wants to see the best in everyone and it's kind of his um, yeah it's kind of his to his own loss you know mm -hmm. and girls I wanted to ask you um, you know you're uh, the, the character of Justine goes through many uh, physical transformations in the film she's but it's very subtle um, how did you prepare to play the character and, um, you know, bring things to create that subtlety? Actually, we talked a lot about her evolution for over a year before we shot. And then we worked a lot on the body and the way of moving the body and the way it moves through space, which happens in many different ways in the film. It was really uh, work that we did on the animality of the character. We often compared her to a panther that at the beginning is crouching in the darkness and at the end comes out and stands tall and reveals itself. And I guess you're, you're very young and so, sorry, <laughs> but um, how did you uh, sort of the the experience of going to college and, you know, sort of coming into one's own, um, did you draw on um, any films or literary works to sort of realize that? Or was that just through conversations uh, with Julia? 
Bah, c'est difficile à répondre parce que. It's hard to answer that question because actually I'm currently in high school. I'll be going to university next year, so I'm I'm really in the heart of all this. And in a sense, next year I'll be entering the adult world. So it's very difficult for me to have distance and and to really know how to identify to the, with the character. And actually, that's not really something that we really worked on. As I said earlier, what we really focused on is how to make emotions felt through the body and uh, how to show the evolution of the character through that. That was the, the main part of our work. Um, and Julia, I guess you have a... Uh, you know, this is a very beautiful film and there's some very striking images. You know, some of them are shocking, some of them are just sort of, you know, the lighting, the way that light is used. Um, what came first? Was it these images or was it, again, sort of like thinking through these concepts and finding, sort of refining and honing down, um, you know, that perfect shocking image? Oh, no, 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 no. My aim was certainly not to be shocking. I think that provocation somehow is a bit shallow. That was not really my aim. I think it's a, it can be a bit gratuitous. Um, my first idea was to consider that cannibals are very often treated as they. They're often treated in movies as they come from outer space or as they are a herd of zombies, which I think is very ironic because some cannibals are human beings and they exist and they have always existed and they will always exist. And you can definitely see why it's a problem when you see the reaction that lady just had. I'm serious, I mean, the reason why we treat them as they is because we want to repress this part of humanity, we do not want to accept it. It's, and I understand why, it's a very hard part of humanity. It's hard to, to process the fact that when you watch someone, you would, I've never have, but or if you watch, let's say, an interview over someone who did, who had uh, cannibal uh, behavior, he doesn't have three tentacles protruding from its ears. It's a person and they look just like us. They are just like us. And I do think that no one, humans or societies, grows up by repressing stuff. I think we grow up by accepting stuff, even the darkest one. I think it's good to be in full possessions or informations in order to grow up and to be able to make moral, moral choices. It's only by experiencing her own monstrosity in a way or her own dangerosity or her own animality that she can be confronted for the first time of her life to this choice, I can kill, but will I? And she won't. And this is exactly when in my movie she's born to humanity, for real. She's no longer a projection of her parents' desires. She's no longer this, like, you know, white, innocent figure that doesn't know shit about anything. It's her own choice that she doesn't do the, the same thing that her sister does. It's her own choice that she thinks that she can be something else and someone else. And that is, for me, uh, that's the the center point of my movie, how can one discover her humanity through something like monstrosity or something that we would qualify as being monstrous um, otherwise. Um, the, the main question behind all this and behind everything I do when I make movies is what is it to be human? What does it represent? What does it imply in us? 
And where do we find our humanity? Is it in our soul? Is it in our spirit? Is it in our body? If your body becomes autonomous at one point, for example, if you get a nasty rash like you get in the movies, or if you lose a limb, are you the same person as you were before? Are you, where are you there since your spirit cannot uh, dictate what your body is doing. So everything in this, in the physical metamorphosis and in the moral metamorphosis is the question, what is it to be human? And this is what really uh, inspired me uh, to make this movie. Well, that angry woman had stuck around. She could have learned that. Um. <laughs> I don't think she wanted to learn that. I don't that. think so either. <laughs> um, I guess, this, unfortunately, this will be our last question, but um, I guess, um, do you envision yourself continuing to work um, with, you know, I don't want to necessarily put a label, a genre label on this, but would you continue to sort of explore similar themes of the body and monstrosity and, you know, things typically, let's say, associated with horror, or do you, for your, do you have ideas for your next project? Yes, of course. I appreciate, I'm writing my next project, by the way, right now. And um, this will be a feature that will be in French as well. And um, I appreciate the fact that you did not want to put a label on my movie because that was my whole point. My point is talking about metamorphosis and my point is talking about people on whom you can't put labels. These gray areas where we discover ourselves. And I wanted my movie to also be a metamorphosis. I wanted my movie to provoke many different uh, emotions throughout. You can laugh and cry and be scared and be disgusted and cry again and laugh again. Everything. Personally, as an audience, this is what I love in movies. I, lo I love to feel alive and I love to feel full at the end of a movie. So thank you for mentioning that. And of course, uh, I will uh, try to continue in the same tone, which is this crossover between comedy, drama, and body horror. Because after all, this is only my first feature, and I don't think that you can tackle and master your art in only one feature. It's not like that. I think I will need more than one, than a lifetime to manage to um, make my own language more precise and more audible to people. So yeah, it's definitely gonna be in the same genre. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, thank you so much. This was a thank you retreat. very much. The close-up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to the close-up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.